It's January 8th, 2014. Happy New Year and welcome to another edition of Bite Mars Cafe where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. And first we'll look at a few tech stories of note here in the islands. Then we'll be joining, uh, we'll be bringing you a couple of news guests. First up is Shelly Oikawa from the UH Bookstore to tell us about a new book price comparison tool. Then we have uh, Jason Sewell from Dev League to update us on their first 12-week software developer training course. Finally, from the rise of the Huffington Post Hawaii to the fall of the Honolulu Weekly to countless declarations of the end or rebirth of blogging, we'll talk about the evolving world of journalism and how technology is changing the media landscape. We, of course, would love your thoughts and questions as part of that conversation. Be ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. Well, Hawaii is among six sites selected by the Federal Aviation Administration to be a testbed for unmanned um, aircraft research. The the announcement uh, late last month comes as the FAA responds to growing commercial interest in using drones. The agency received 25 proposals from 24 states. Test site ranges include locations in Hawaii and Oregon and are... um, actually part of a proposal submitted by the University of Alaska, which plans to develop standards for different drone types, state monitoring, and navigation. The five other proposals selected come from New York, Nevada, Texas, Virginia, and North Dakota. The FAA says the set of locations, chosen after a 10-month selection process, provide cross-country geographic and climatic diversity. Sensitive to privacy concerns, the testing program does include requirements relating to protecting civil liberties, including making privacy policies public, as well as plans related to data use and retention. The test site operators uh, um, are expected to give access to parties interested in using the site and enforce strict safety standards. The six programs will be able to operate through February of 2017. There are no details as to where in Hawaii the test ranges will be, but the FAA already oversees military drone training at Schofield Barracks and Wheeler Army Airfield on Oahu and the Pohakuloa Training Area on the Big Island. Now, you know, I um, got a chance to talk to Jim Christofoli over at the D-Bed, and he kind of heads up the aerospace uh, department over there and is actually the point guy on uh, this development. And, of course, you know, this has been a story that's been covered by the news, and we thought it'd be interesting to, you know, sort of bring it up in, in on Bite Marks Cafe. The interesting thing is that he had told me on the phone today that, you know, this is really early. They just got the announcement. They really don't have plans in mind. They want to sort of convene everybody and start to discuss, you know, what is on the horizon for this kind of development. And people are already asking, like, you know, is there an economic impact, uh, you know, on the state of Hawaii? Are there going to be commercial drones flying around my home? You know, is this going to be sort of like uh, where they're going to test spying. Well, it's interesting that, you know, we're looking on one hand at uh, things that take a while, as Jim uh, said, but also it was as early as 2012 where the Senate passed a resolution trying to get the FAA to select Hawaii as a test site, um, saying that it's good for high-paying jobs and, you know, tech, high-tech research here in Hawaii. Uh, there was, in fact, is still active a bill in the Senate, SB 783, to try and ban the use of these drones mm-hmm. for surveillance purposes. Um, so, this has been brewing for a long time, but otherwise, you also had over the Christmas break news of Amazon saying mm-hmm. that we love to deliver packages with drones. And um, one of the viral videos of the last couple of weeks is a guy who was using a quadrocopter to take overhead 
beautiful video of uh, surf of pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, people are actually doing this. It's it's all over the news. But on the other hand, it's a slow burn as far as the government yeah. is concerned. And as far as, uh, uh, you know, Jim's position on this, I mean, these are going to be activities that are taking place where nobody is. I mean, this is going to be on remote uh, uh, airfields, and it's not going to be impacting the, the public at this point in time. We'll keep tracking it, though. A new locally produced television series is highlighting the people and places behind some of the latest ocean research taking place in the islands. Voice of the Sea is a production of the University of Hawaii Sea Grant Center of Excellence in Marine Science Education, and it premiered this past Sunday. That debut kicks off a 19-episode season of half-hour episodes hosted by Center Director Kanisa Duncan Serafin. She's also a researcher, educator, and even a world paddleboard champion. Voice of the Sea airs Sundays at 6 p.m. on KFOC. Sarafin has described the new show as Dirty Jobs in the Ocean, a reality-based show spanning the Pacific that profiles local leaders in both the science realm as well as in native cultures and practices. The aim of the show, funded in part by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is to create a more engaged and vibrant community and encouraging students to pursue careers in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. K-5 General Director uh, or Manager John Fink said in a statement, we're very excited to provide a weekly showcase about our ocean home and the surrounding environment. This show will feature adventure, exploration, culture, and science in an attractive manner for local TV viewers. Voice of the Sea episodes will also be made available online the day after they are broadcast locally to reach a much wider audience. Indeed, the Sea Grant Center is developing a free companion curriculum to be used alongside the show in classrooms anywhere. Now, I got a chance to talk to uh, Cindy Knappman over at the uh, Sea Grant, and she was telling me that, uh, you know, this is a 19-episode uh, series, and uh, that's for one year, and I think uh, it's already been, you know, I think scheduled for two years. It'll be an interesting show. I didn't catch the one on Sunday, but uh, they, um, at least uh, Sarafin has been out to places like American Samoa, mm-hmm. to uh, Guam and Palau. So it's really all about what's happening from a science and culture standpoint in the ocean in the Pacific. Yeah, the Pacific, not just Hawaii. And so, and in fact, this just past episode was more kind of an introduction to the series mm-hmm. and what the what the idea for it is. And it is, in fact, from this point forward, from this point uh, this Sunday on, each episode is a specific profile on a specific person. In fact, they're going to be talking about uh, Hawaiian fish pond restoration on Maui this Sunday, and they're going to be covering everything from aquaponics to deep sea conditions, uh, traditional navigation, coastal erosion. In fact, basically a lot of the things we talk about here on Bite Marks Cafe, but on TV. I know. So it's uh, it'll be an interesting show to watch, and I think very educational. Here's a couple of quick additional side tech tidbits we wanted to share with you. If you're interested in learning more about the once a abundant native Hawaiian fish pond, and specifically about the Heia fish pond north of Kaneohe. There's an app for that. The Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology has released an iOS app called Loko Ia, featuring interactive tours, science information, photos, and audio clips. Funded in part by the National Science Foundation, the local EA app can be downloaded for free from the iTunes App Store. Also from the Windward side, the Oceanic Institute officially became a part of Hawaii Pacific University last week. The merger, which was months in the making, upgrades the institute from an affiliate to an official research arm of HPU. The Institute's 50 employees are now HPU employees, and Institute President Sean Moss said its new status within HPU will expand educational and research funding opportunities. It's a, quote, win-win for all involved. Cool stuff. Now, joining us here in the studio is Shelly Oikawa from the UH Bookstore, and she's here to tell us about a new book pricing tool for students. Welcome to the show, Shelly. Hello, guys. Thank you for having me. 
Now, you know, I think um, it's kind of cool that you can actually have a tool that tells you where you can get the most uh, maybe cost-effective textbooks. When I went to school, there was no choice. You had to buy whatever the bookstore had. Where where can people go and find this, this app, and what does it actually do? The app is going to be available at our website, bookstore.hawaii.edu, mm-hmm. and it's actually for students at all 10 of the University of Hawaii campuses across the state. It's geared towards improving their textbook buying experience overall by showing them all of the different pricing options that are available online and in our stores. Now, I know as a former student, in fact, as Bert mentioned, when you think affordable or reasonably priced books, you probably don't immediately think of college textbooks. So does this app basically uh, allow comparison shopping, or do you see it more as a way to show people that what is available at the bookstore is pretty much the best deal that they can get? We wanted to show students that we are here for them and let them know that we want to give them the correct information that what they need to find all of their textbooks. We are not afraid to show all of the prices that are available out there because we feel that there is value in the convenience of our bookstores and also in the staff that is there to help them every day in the store. So it's, uh, although if you look at the comparison and then you find that there is a cheaper alternative, uh, this app allows them to explore that, right? I mean, you can go online, maybe go to Amazon and see if uh, you can actually buy it there. But you guys aren't afraid of that. I mean, you're not trying to discourage people from coming to the bookstore, right? No, not at all. We actually are daring our students to compare not only our prices, but the value of our products and services. Right now, there are over 350 other college stores using this same comparison tool, and we've learned from them that when students are presented with this transparent information, over 85% of the time, they will choose to shop at their campus bookstore. This tells us that students value the convenience of picking up the books directly in the store and being able to talk directly with our staff and ask questions about the books that they're buying. Right. In fact, I think uh, you're seeing that a lot of places. Uh, Best Buy is no longer afraid of showrooming. They want you to come in and compare the price, and you might still, because it's right there in front of you, uh, choose it. And in fact, I think the value of a comparison tool is that there's no mystery where you, if you do see a $200 textbook, you don't think, well, they've got to be gouging me. You just look, you can see the marketplace and see that it's it's pretty reasonable for that specific text. Is this something that works just at a specific campus or is it for the bookstores at several campuses in the university system? No, it's going to be available at all of our bookstore websites. So you just go to bookstore.hawaii.edu. You can choose the campus that you are attending classes at and enter in your courses that you're taking. It'll pull up a list of all of the books that are required for those courses and it'll show the prices. Of course, on the top of the page is going to be the bookstore price. It may be available in new use condition or even in a rental. And then towards the bottom of the page, it's going to show the Amazon prices. It could be half.com prices. It's all of the other top online competitors. I didn't even know you could rent a book. And does this, would it even include, say, e-books or electronic versions? of? Yes. Textbooks? If digital options are available, those options will also be shown on the website and the prices for them as well. So who actually uh, developed this application? It was developed by a group of Harvard students. It was a student government project for them. And they had the same concerns while they were in school, trying to help their fellow students find the most affordable textbook prices online and it was started in 2008 and they've only been around for three years but they've been able to 
help bookstores provide this same information to all of their students. Well, I know this was just announced formally today, and so we're glad to have you here early to tell us about it, but you clearly had to do some testing. Have you gotten any feedback from students if you've gone out to show it to them? We've actually had a few students come into the store and tell us thank you. You know, they said it's really, really convenient to be able to look at the book list online, see all of the prices, and then decide which books they want to get. We've also seen students come into the store with their smartphone or tablet, take a look at the books, and check the prices online while they're in the store. Very good. So once again, where can uh, a student or soon-to-be student go to use this price comparison tool? It's available at bookstore.hawaii.edu. Oh, good enough. Easy to remember. And thanks, Shelly, for joining us. And of course, uh, also here in the studio is Jason Sewell, and he is uh, here to tell us about the upcoming Dev League program. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we recently had Russell uh, Chang on, who is also um, working with you on building this program, to sort of talk about uh, how it is coming together. And we it's now it's later this month, in fact, correct? Yes. We, so we start on January 27th, and we're uh, still taking applications and trying to fill out uh, the last remaining seats. Now, 2013 was a whole year ago. So just for those who can't recall, what is the Dev, Dev League idea? So the idea behind Dev League is that we're... Uh, looking for motivated individuals that kind of want to transition into a new career path or kind of ex- expand on uh, existing skills and really pursue a, a career in professional software development. And we're going to teach them those skills over the course of 12 weeks that they can uh, then go g- get a job as a as a software developer. So, so this 12-week uh, course, it's pretty intense, right? I mean, it's pretty much a full-time dedicated 12 weeks. Yeah, so it's it's they refer to it as a boot camp style mm-hmm. and that's really what it is is that you basically commit your almost your entire life for 12 weeks to um, really just kind of diving in and, and learning really everything about becoming a software professional and and not just coding but everything it takes to really be a professional software developer and, and go into a team and be productive and and really on, be on par with with the knowledge that you need to to create, you know, modern software and I guess part of the uh, part of the thing that the Dev League is is there to also help provide is maybe something after the the course is, is finished. Uh, how do you help to maybe seek out job opportunities for these graduates? So we have a program, what we call our employer network, and that's kind of an, another you know value that we're adding to the program is mm-hmm. is not only are we going to train you with the skills to go out into the job market, but we're also going to do what we can to bring the job market to you. So we're, all, we're constantly going out and talking to companies and, and telling them what we're doing and, and kind of preparing them and, and setting up you know um, agreements for students to, to go interview or, or have their resumes submitted to these companies coming out. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of anticipating mm-hmm. that these students will be coming out at, at a certain point and, and that they'll bring them in and, and give them opportunity. Well, Jason, you know, I mean, I've put on my, my New Year's resolution for probably four years now to start programming. You know, I've got an app idea. I think right. it's going to be awesome. All i got to do is sit down and do it. And I know that you can go online and take classes for free or just watch YouTube videos. But, you know, I never get around to it. Um, but I am a geek. You know, that's certainly something that I could perhaps apply myself toward. What is the who are, Who's the audience here? Is it maybe a... Uh, someone who knows absolutely nothing about technology? Is it somebody who uh, maybe can do a WordPress website but now really wants to get into programming? And who, who, who are, who's the target for DevLeague? Uh, the target audience is really, you know, from our point of view, we look for really motivated people that want to pursue a career in web development. So, you know, we've talked to both 
people that are kind of more hobbyists or or have some development, and even s professional developers that really just have a different skill set and are kind of burnt out on what they're doing and looking to transition really in, into more modern web. And then there's people that, you know, just have an idea, you know, there's all the news out there, learn code, and, and obviously a ton of opportunity for professional web developers out there now, and, and they know it's a viable, uh, you know, high-paying career path. And and so that's that's really um, you know anybody that really wants to transition into so that role. As you um, as you sort of look at the landscape of possible employers, are you looking primarily for local employers to perhaps take some of the graduates, or are you also looking at uh, you know employers on the mainland? We're looking everywhere. I mean, really, our our point of view is that we want to provide opportunity and, and the opportunity that the the graduating students really are setting themselves up for. So we're talking to a lot of local companies. Obviously, you know, you kind of have all that the startup paradise talk happening right now, and mm -hmm. and really to to kind of see that ecosystem continue to grow. Obviously, we need the developers to support that. So as those companies keep building, we're going to need the developers to really feed into that as well as existing startups and small business locally, and and for people that really do want to cope go pursue uh, on a global level a, a career path you know we're going to try to position them as well so really it's about providing opportunity and and the opportunity that that the students desire well you know i mean i can speak certainly to demand i mean even my day job we do websites and we're looking and expanding into mobile app development because that's that's really what um, customers want what whether it's a local business or a realtor they say okay i want an app not just a website so demand is clear but uh, and as bert says it's an intensive program one that you're really going to commit and come out the other end ready to go but you know i would imagine that these these sort of opportunities aren't necessarily easier within reach of everybody um does like any other educational program, is there a way for Dev League to to make it easier for someone to participate? Um, in, in what sense? I'm sorry. Like a, a scholarship. Oh programs. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. So yeah, so we actually we have two scholarships available. Uh, we have the female hacker scholarship. So we're really trying to uh, encourage females to to pursue uh, software development as a career path. And we also have the uh, low income scholarship available. So for people that really have kind of the brains and and the motivation and the desire, but maybe you know not not the ability to pay for higher education. We really want to provide opportunity for them as well. Now I'm curious, uh, not to put down any you know bachelor of science degree or anything, but would a person coming out with a BS degree in computer science benefit from something like this, or are they already equipped to go into the market as a programmer? They're probably equipped to go into as a programmer, but there really are new, you know, the current computer science programs really don't train you for the web. They don't, they don't train you for mobile. And, and like you guys said, that's what everybody, you know, everybody want, needs a web presence. And mm -hmm. that's really where a lot of, you know, new businesses are being built, whether it's, it's app development or, or, or on the web or, or both. So, um, but computer science programs generally still are, are theory based and, and we have to cover that. So, so people that come out of computer science are going to be in a, in a little, have a little bit more of a foundation coming mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. But coming out, they're they're really going to have new new skills that that really the employers want you to kind of have on day one. Great stuff. So this starts in a couple of weeks. Where can someone go if they want to sign up for Dev League? Yeah, so please uh, visit us online at devleague.com, and you can also follow us on Facebook Dev League and Twitter at Dev League Hawaii. Sounds good. Thanks, Shelley and Jason, for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah, for thank you for having us. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Ben Trevino and James Cave, and they're here to tell us about what's happening in the new 
news media landscape? Where do you consume your news? Or, in fact, are you a citizen journalist? Do you like to take your news in 140 characters or less? We'd, of course, love to hear your thoughts, your questions as part of this conversation. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter. You can reach us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Roz Cohen returns to the Atherton January 11th with Bossa, Broadway, Borscht, and all that jazz. Music veterans Josh Kay, Ernie Preventure, Bill Noble, and Jerome James join Roz for an evening of timeless music and shtick. Saturday, January 11th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at 955-8821 during business hours or online at hprtickets.org. Whenever I'm traveling on other islands, I immediately set all my buttons on the rental car to whatever HPR transmitters are available. Probably drives the, the, the car lot attendants crazy, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, I've always done that for many, many years. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Ben Chavino and James Cave. By day, Ben is a database analyst over at UHERO, but at night he turns into an advocate for creativity and the arts and a culture provocateur. Mm, James is the editor for the online culture site called The Offsetter. Previously, he worked at the Honolulu Weekly and the Honolulu Museum of Arts. And both have a unique perspective on how the media landscape is changing. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or... One eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Ben and James, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Wow, thanks. Thanks, thanks for having I us. I have to tell you, that was really good research. I don't think I ever told you any of those things. <laughs> well, you know, there Googles. is this thing called the wow. web, and uh, you know, whatever comes up on the web, I usually take as the gospel truth. And of course, I've you know, I've periodically the... promoted people on the show, <laughs> but that's okay. Per- periodically, more often than not. Uh, but uh, but James, you've been you know, you've been around. You've been uh, working at. Um, uh, Honolulu Weekly and, and uh, you know, I think it involved with uh, sort of the print media. I wanted to have you both kind of give us a, a little bit of background on your sort of involvement with whether it's traditional media or new media. And, James, you can, you can lead it off. All right. Well, you mentioned uh, just a second ago that you take uh, everything online as gospel. And I know you were joking, but I think <laughs> that is kind of a funny thing to say facetiously because of, you know, what we're talking about today um, in terms of, who is a journalist? What makes journalism? Um, I think right now we have a lot of things that kind of are disguised as or rhyme with journalism or look, really look like it, especially if I go on Facebook right now. I'm looking at all these things people are sharing, and some of them are like obviously a BuzzFeed headline mm-hmm. or a Viral Nova headline or whatever, but some of them look kind of legitimate. And so I, you have to, I'm starting to find myself going to that like fine print link underneath the picture to find out, okay, well, is this like a at a site that I already recognize or what is this? And then I won't even click on it if it's something that I've never seen before because mm-hmm. those things are just popping up like crazy. So in terms of like journalism right now, Ben and I wanted to do this uh, film series to try to talk about what all what, these trends and, and, and what can we trust and what do they all mean? And, and not only that, but what does it mean for like a local news industry going through all these changes that Honolulu just went through last year? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so uh, we think we hopefully that, 
that the, the media professionals that we've invited will come and bring with them their viewpoints and their opinions and ideas, but also a lot of the people who read what they write and what these professionals put out there, what people care about in terms of their information. I hope that they come out too, and then it's a really good dialogue. That's kind of what we're mm-hmm. hoping. Well, but James, uh, you now are the uh, editor of a site called The Offsetter, and uh, I immediately seized upon it, especially with the demise, unfortunately, of the Honolulu Weekly, trying to find you know that basic niche of coverage, arts and culture, maybe with a little bit of bite, a little bit of attitude. Um, tell me a little bit about what uh, inspired you to create The Offsetter. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for saying all that. That's really nice. The Offsetter is kind of like a response to what I was doing at the Honolulu Weekly. I was the arts and culture editor there for some time, and I... I was in, in, in while I was the, at the desk. I uh, developed a lot of relationships with local artists and local creative people, and I heard a lot of things about what what they were saying in terms of what they thought should be, um, how they thought the arts and culture scene should be covered or represented. And there were quite a, a bit of challenges actually faced with me in, at the arts and culture desk in terms of the print publication and the weekly being so thin and so strapped for space and. You know, when you're cut down to half a page for a story that you really wanted to go more in depth about or you have a really good interview, but you got to trim it. I mean, it's just those limitations that print media um, gives you. I, I was just like, you know, this stuff needs to be online. There's so many more options available. There's so much more multimedia things. There's I don't know. You, there's a lot of stories that can be more effectively told if done so online with multimedia. And we, I just was like, we, we can't do this with the weekly right now. And, and so I, I left there to start up the Offsetter uh, in, in a way that was like all arts, all culture, kind of all creativity. Um, and no column inches to worry about. Right, yeah. But now I have to worry about like funding. And <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask you that. But like all that stuff. So um, we're, we're trying to figure that out. Well, I mean, so you come from a journalism background. Uh, I have to say that this topic is always near and dear to my heart. I, I went through the journalism program at UH. Um, but of, among all my friends who worked worked in media, I never did, because although as a passion it's there, as like you said, the revenue question is always kind of a challenge. Now, Ben, we know you through Interion and Terminal, through your ability to do design, through your tech industry work, but uh, I, I, I did want to kind of hear, how did you become passionate about journalism? I mean, you have this film series. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You're looking at all the president, President's Men on Friday, one of my favorite films. So what, what tickled your fancy as far as journalism is concerned? I like to think that I I married into this industry actually. So oh. uh, ah, just yeah. like I married into the arts, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, not James, although <laughs> I've been trying. He's a, we're he's open a, minded. I've really been trying. He's an eligible man, uh, but but uh, I my wife's a food writer, and uh, so I watch her, and I'm a nosy guy, so I like to get involved with with her business whenever possible, and so I watch the things that are important to her and and her reviewing, and one of the things that always comes up is. Uh, the question of what's the value of of a food reviewer or maybe like a local movie reviewer, right? like a local arts coverage if you're covering something that is national in scope. There's different kinds of questions. But specifically with food, you want to ask, well, what, what value can you add over and above Yelp? Right? Like when right, everyone right. can review something, you have Yelp, what's the role of, of somebody who does uh, restaurant reviews in a magazine? right? And I think it's an interesting question. And I don't think the answer is you can't provide any value. Really. Like I think there is a lot of value you can provide, but it really does force the issue and force you to think about it, right? And we think about it in different ways. I like to insert my opinion, which is not always welcome, uh, <laughs> as any husband, yeah, as any husband would would know. Uh, but but you know, I have my own opinions about. It. They're usually driven by things like data and data. But 
But uh, and graphs of that, data and graphs of data, and that's how those conversations kind of go. But but that's that's sort of how I got into it. And then I think I think also from from my own work with data visualization, that the primary objective of those things is to communicate widely, right? And so I think there's some resonance with the purpose and function of journalism. Right? We want to take information that's available, make sure that it's in the hands of the people that can do something with it. It's actionable information. And, and so now I'm, I've found that I'm sensitive to these issues. It's like if, if journalism isn't functioning well, uh, there's things I can learn about why that might be happening that I can apply to mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. stuff that I do. Now, you know, for, uh, for both of you, uh, having looked at this opportunity to either be in print or be online, and, and Ben, in your case, your wife's sort of ability to have a vehicle like uh, Honolulu to print her articles or her reviews, um, the, uh, James, you kind of brought it up that you wanted to have more of a long form, you wanted to have multimedia, you wanted to actually tell a longer story. But then the challenge is how do you make that sustainable from a financial standpoint? And so everybody can go on the web, everybody can start up a website. It's easy to go get a domain name and get a, get it, you know, your content hosted. That's that's probably not the, the hard part. It's creating the content, but then actually sustaining it over time. Have you sort of sort of started to think about I'm sure you have, but I mean, what is the way of actually sustaining that financial model? Yeah, well, I mean, like, what? Who doesn't want to have a a salary and mm-hmm. health insurance, mm-hmm. and then also be able to do whatever they want to do, right? I mean, so that was always the goal to be kind of like working for myself, working for just w- doing what I want to do, and then also pay the bills and pay rent. But um, so when we started it, it the whole thing was this huge educational like, process, and it's just. It's two of us, so I, I I got this idea, and then I went straight to my one of my like cr- huge creative crushes, Dana Peressa, who's a, a, vi- a visual artist and illustrator, and she's hilarious. And so I was like, Dana, I have this idea. What do you think? And she's like, Yeah, okay. And so we started it, and then the whole thing, starting a business, um, journalism itself was still sort of new to me, um, you know, in the professional sense, and then. Media, uh, media trends, internet, starting a, a website, all these things. And then on top of that, a business that was supposed to make money was all kind of a learning curve. So we're still learning that. We just started in April and we're looking at all these ideas. Like there are a lot of models, but nobody seems to have figured it out mm-hmm. industry wide. And so it's really kind of a, a community effort to work together to figure this out because even from the biggest guys, you know, on the international scale, with worldwide audiences and millions of hits are still struggling with this. So they're trying to figure it out. So they've got websites, discussion boards, all these things. And it's really beneficial to us little guys who are like, okay, well, what are they learning? What are they figuring out? And then how do we apply that to, you know, our hyperlocal sort of bubble that we're trying mm-hmm. to do? It there are definitely a lot of topics that could we could get into, the value of comments, whether journalists can be biased and if we can handle that. We're talking to Ben Trevino from Inner Island Terminal and James Kay from The Offsetter about the state of media in Hawaii and beyond and how technology may play a part in transforming, if not completely disrupting it. If you've got a thought, if you've got a blog, if you want to change the world as a citizen journalist, you can give us a call and join the conversation at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We're also checking in on Twitter. Twitter, you can tweet at Hawaii or at Bite Marks. So, uh, Ben, uh, Bert, uh, Bert did mention this long form idea, and then and I'm loving the rebirth of long form. Medium.com by the guy who created Twitter saying, "Okay, well, we can go long." You know, long reads as a concept. There's there are no column inches, but 
you, working at UHero, find a way to take a complex issue and turn it into a beautiful pie chart or a beautiful graph that just says, with one image, the whole story. So I'm wondering, you know, how do you manage that, that there seems to be the trend that content is getting simpler and shorter and tweeter, right? Um, but also that we have the opportunity to go in depth. I mean, is that is there a conflict there? Is there a mix there? Are you struggling with that as a designer? Well, I think there are a couple of different issues, right? The, the role of long-form journalism, I think, is uh, is it's a very specific role, or maybe not a specific role, but it, but it includes, sort of brings up different things and say, uh, a data visualization or something that I might work on. You know, you might read a long piece of journalism to uh, not only get information, but also to to sort of re- receive it aesthetically. You know, you're you're going through an experience. They're building an atmosphere. You're you're reading it because you enjoy reading, right? And uh, a visual may not give you that same effect, but what a visual may do is uh, take take a bunch of information that somebody spent a lot of time looking at, and then give you their quick summary. But with with the web and with web technologies, one of our goals is to not just create something that it, that tells a story quickly. That's that's an objective because I think that's what draws you in. But also give you a tool that you can sit in front of for a little while and play with, and and in some ways choose your own adventure because you can figure out what are you interested in looking at, what can you drill down into, and so that that moves in a different direction. I don't think it really replaces hmm. long form journalism. Uh, and in fact, I see it as sort of two two different issues. Uh, I like that because I'm not capable of writing long, good long-form journalism. That stuff is well, fantastic and really hard to do. So I think there's value in both. I think some websites are finding success in publishing a mixture because then you're reaching like people who enjoy you know, packing a long-form article on their phone with them through whatever app you like, read it later or readability, and then you click on the website and you, you download it to your phone. Or then there's like you know the two-headed cat articles, right, where somebody said to me, James, you need more two-headed cats. I mean, you hate to say it, but you got to have people who just like that stuff. Um, but each website can can find their own version of that. And it doesn't have to be obvious clickbait, but I think to have a mixture of those super short, fast read things that you can sit while you just need a break from whatever you're working on or something you can read on the bus or mm-hmm, on your mm-hmm. commute. But I think what both long-form journalism and, and say the data visualization type of work that, that I do have in common is that ideally both of those things will have many, many, many more hours of work behind them than you actually experiencing experience consuming them right like if even a, a, a long form piece that takes you an hour to read should have taken somebody you know weeks or months to research uh and and they're giving it to you in a form that that saves you a lot of time uh but reflects the depth of research and i think the same thing is true of, of these visuals it's uh you receive it quickly and so in some ways it's you might think well somebody's throwing it away in five minutes but but they've received a lot of information and, and it's only taken a few people several weeks to do it but it can it can cross many people and really have a wide impact. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking to uh, Ben Chavino from Inner Island Terminal and James K. from The Offsetter. We're talking about new media journalism. And if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We want to welcome John from Berkeley to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. good. Again. Aloha. Um, I'm loving the uh, the topic tonight. I actually, uh, I think maybe Ryan at least knows that I had a news startup for a while, and um, I've thought a lot about some of these things, and I think it's important to, first of all, kind of distinguish in some ways between news and journalism, because I discovered that there's just kind of this product called news that is just uh, the result of machines 
copying stories over and over and over again, right? But the real journalism that you're talking about, I think with it in transition, I just see a lot of these endeavors being supported by benefactors, and I wanted your input on that. Anything from, say, here in Berkeley, we have a local kind of community blog called Berkeley Side that, um, that is certainly supported by benefactors. And then you've got, like, the whole other end of the spectrum of, like, you know, Glenn Greenwald and his new venture, but that's really a benefactor-based thing. You have Jeff Bezos do, working on the Washington Post, right? Again, bringing money to the table. It just seems like benefactors, benefactors, benefactors. Um, I'll take it off the air, but Ryan, let's learn Python this year. And by the way, Ben and James, you know, I love couch surfing with Hawaii Tech. So, um, anyway, <laughs> wow. talk to you guys later. Hey, thanks for calling yeah, in. Yeah, thanks, John. A lot of great thoughts. And in fact, I did want to ask you about that. Um, Hawaii, in fact, is a laboratory in many ways. We had Civil Beat uh, and is still going strong um, with a benefactor um, trying to find a subscription based model, find a way to support good journalism, you know, not just churning out news the way a factory might churn out cat food. Um, and we now have uh, the first look media, which is what uh, Omidyar is going to be doing with um, journalists on the mainland. But it seems like a lot of people say, you know, trying to do good work based on clickbait or links and ad impressions is simply not sustainable. So somehow finding a benefactor or a bigger model uh, might just be what we need. So, James, I mean, would the offsetter accept a seed investment from a large capital company to keep it going, to keep doing good work? Or will you revert to the listicle? Oh, well. <laughs> you know, we're, our our position for benefactor is still open. Okay, uh, we're actually looking right now. So if anybody knows, I don't know the Wattamoles. I know they like art. <laughs> or uh, Kelly Sueda, if you're listening, you Putting know, just uh, you can send me an email. No, I I think yeah, that's very important, and I I don't think that should you know change the the um, credibility of the news source or the journalistic um, website or whatever. I think that all the, all the better that it supports it and keeps it going. Um, I think that resorting to to the listicle is probably the worst thing that you can. That I mean, this is my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's really, really, really sacrificing your credibility when you do something like that, um, just for the fact of getting 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 uh, views and getting and and, hits. and what we're talking about, you know, for uh, for people who might not know what a listicle is, is sort of those top ten lists that come out on BuzzFeed or. Oftentimes on the uh, Huff Post, you know, they always talk about the top ten reasons why you want to visit Hawaii or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go on the record. I hate those things. <laughs> I really hate listicles because BuzzFeed does really good, you know, longer form journalism or, or what he was talking about, the caller mentioning b- between news and journalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. BuzzFeed's really good at, at doing those pieces, and and so is Huffington Post. They've won Pulitzer's for crying out loud. I just feel like you're, you know, when you reach, but they've also gone, they've become so big, and I think in part because of those listicles. So then I'm thinking, well, yeah, obviously there is a value in that. It's just like, I don't know, maybe it's our, our modern day version of of like how much do you want? Do you want to sell out if you want to do a listicle and get get the clicks? I don't know. Well, I definitely want to talk a, a little bit more about that and uh, I get Ben's thoughts as, you know, perhaps when you're talking about benefactors can really cheesy viral things be another way to support good work. But we'll get back to that uh, after our short break. And when we return, we'll continue with uh, Ben Trevino and James Cave to tell us about what's happening in the news media landscape. And of course, uh, what is the job market like for journalists or whether you want to be a a, a news writer? Uh, Is that really a dying breed or, you know, is there a financial model out there? We'd love to hear your comments, and of course, that number to call is 941 3689 
or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Of all the wars we've had, one in particular has yet to come to an end. This administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. I'm Kai Rizdal. Five decades of policy wars. We'll have that story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street next time on Marketplace. It's from APN. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. This week on Applause in a Small Room, slack key guitarist Danny Carvalho, along with his band featuring Will Tafolo, Nava Lanzalotti, Chris Lorenis, and special guests John and Jamaica Osorio, play music from Danny's latest album. That's Danny Carvalho on Applause in a Small Room Sunday at 4 p.m. on HPR2. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're talking to Ben Trevino and James Cave about the changing face of journalism. And, of course, we're discuss, discussing the future of investigative reporting. And, and if you have any comment or thought about that, the number here is 941-3689 on Oahu and 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, you know, right during that little break, uh, Ben, I think you got a tweet or a text message about James actually doing a listicle? I mean, yeah, what, my, what's that all about? My wife went out of her way to, to point out that James Cave has actually done these things that he proclaims to hate. <laughs> so, James Cave, James, did explain you, yourself. have you done te- right. top ten ways you won't believe that this man will change the face of local <laughs> fishing? No, no. Okay, so I know what she's talking about. So, Kyle Reutner, the, the, one of the best bartenders on the island, came to me with this idea of saying, hey, I, there are a lot of really good drinks, and not all of them are alcoholic, and they don't have to be, and I want to paint a picture of this. So I want to make like top 10 drinks or top five drinks that you can get on the island and um, give a little, a little description and talk about why I like them. And, and he, he wrote this piece, and it was a really good piece, and, and it kind of like hopped around town and it had a little bit of a, a blurb about why he liked the drink, and some of them <laughs> had a little history to the drink, and... It was great, but it wasn't like some arbitrary, you know, number and uh, with a headline that just like grabs your heartstrings and makes you want to click it. And there weren't gifs involved either. So like (laughs) if you take the gifs out, (laughs) then it's just gibberish. It's like this article that makes no sense. So it was like it was I think of that piece and those kinds of articles as more of a service piece. You know what I mean? Like I actually think we did some of that stuff at the weekly too on the back page that island wise page the citywide page we did that where we kind of did a roundup of different things based on a theme and i think it was kind of a cool service well let's let's so i mean i, I love that uh, ben's wife is keeping you honest but i i on a serious level you know we're talking about these viral techniques and the way you write a headline like you won't believe or whatever that 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 you see all over the place now but ben a top 10 list i mean for someone who's into summarizing data and making it easily accessible it's, they're not inherently evil, are they? I don't think so. I mean, and you also have to respect, they've perfected headline writing. Like, they, through science or, or black magic, these, these guys can write the best headlines that have ever seen. Actually, you know, I day. think Twitter has really helped people it, perfect yeah, the headline all, writing. The, the, various, the various techniques of needing to shorten, uh, shorten our comments have forced us into these very uh, 
efficient ways of, of communicating well what 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 strikes me especially when working having you know, worked at Kaleo at UH and we actually had to typeset headlines to fit in the space so you'd pick kind of an awkward word because it fits better than a better word that you would use now it doesn't matter headlines can be sentences and that's what you're getting you know yes this is a ship when you look closer you're in for a shock these 20 <laughs> kids are hilariously bad at hide and seek you know <laughs> But that's because you have that freedom to write that way. So I, I do think that there is a science, certainly, to writing those Actually, things. Actually, can you click on that, Rook? Can I see that? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Ben, uh, you know, one of the things that you had brought up earlier was uh, the idea of uh, writing for a long form or li- writing for uh, print media and then having perhaps the option to write online. Uh, and I think that's sort of your in, in your wife's case, if you're looking over her shoulder and you're looking at what she's writing. And how... Does that, you know, perhaps, um, you know, she's able to have a job and, and, and do it for a Honolulu magazine. Could that be translated to the web? And if it is translated to the web, you know, like in, in James's case, you know, you're now doing it on your own terms. You can add whatever multimedia. You can spend as much time as you want on the back end, on developing the article. But then, you know, the, the, the financial aspect of it is not quite there. So when looking over her shoulder and you're seeing one or the other, um, I mean, I'm sure you're telling her, hey, stay with the, you know, stay with Honolulu Magazine. But <laughs> is there something that you think does differentiate her long form in the print media versus something that might uh, be, let's say, uh, printed or put onto the web? I don't think there's a difference in the, in the nature of the content. I think uh, it's primarily an issue of, of buyer expectations. Uh, and I think what... The, the huge issue is is business. Can you construct a business around writing uh, that that works, that's mm-hmm, viable? Mm-hmm. And people have figured out how to do it in magazines, and magazines continue to be a pretty viable business. Uh, for whatever reason, they make uh, they they have their thing, and it works. And on the web, I don't think uh, we know how to do it. And I think a lot of that is that people expect content on the web to be free, and that that's the expectation. There's this information. They should. People don't want to feel as though they are. There's no good place for them to, to hand over their money. Uh, it's not clear where it is. I think people feel comfortable handing over their money once they uh, pay for their internet bill, uh, and that's it. And they don't want to keep paying. And and I don't think there's necessarily anything uh, inherently wrong with that. But it's it's something that needs to be figured out, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's the big issue is that we're all looking for a way. Everybody would agree that if James Cave could spend two months researching an issue that what came out of it would be fantastic, world-changing, mm-hmm. life-changing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we would all want to see that, but would we, we need to figure out, we, well, we need to figure out how people can feel good about paying for stuff because business is all about making people feel good about what they're paying for. You know, like they, I run into this problem. I, I like movies and I like it. I get defensive and people say movies are too expensive. Uh, and they're, they're not really, it's not that expensive, but, but people don't like handing over that, Twelve dollars for a ticket. Uh, it's just it's just something that people don't like, and, and well, that's kind of how I see it. One of the things that we've we've seen attempted before is crowdfunded journalism, Spot.us, and other sites where you, James, would say, "I want to do an investigative report on sushi prices uh, during New Year's with math and economists and fishermen and everything." That's going to take me three months, six hundred hours. Please, I will do this if I can raise seven thousand um, dollars. Is that something, I mean, because people are more and more comfortable crowdfunding to get gadgets or cases for their phones or uh, recyclable uh, wrapping on Maui, for example, with Rappoli, uh, would you see that as a, as, as a, as a good 
potential to fund what you do? Yes, we've looked into that actually, but those, I think one of the challenges that we, when we present ourselves with that idea, that route is that, well, those typically have our projects with a beginning and an end date, similar to like an art installation project. So when we're also looking at art funding grants for this website, we're also thinking, well, how, how can we phrase it so that this is, I mean, this is a website that hopefully is ongoing and doesn't end. And so it's like, well, do we just continually, where do we put our energy, right? Because now uh, it's two of us, we're, we're trying to edit and Dana's trying to design the thing and we're trying to get pieces written and we're trying to publish and do things regularly. Uh, we also need to bring somebody in who can look at funding as, you know, their main objective as well. And so it's, you know, yeah, it's just, I think it's just a factor of being young and being uh, young as a business and being uh, just a small staff right now, you know. You know, the idea um, that you had uh, b- kind of brought up, um, I guess both of you, about the benefactor and trying to look at that as a, as a model. Um, a lot of the big projects on the mainland seem to have a fairly large, uh, let's say, benefactor supporting the effort. Well, from a local, sort of hyper-local standpoint, do you think that same kind of model would work uh, here uh, you know, in terms of our sort of local coverage? What, what specifically are you thinking about? Well, you know, in terms of, like, let's say um, Pierre Omidyar is, you know, putting a lot of money toward this first look. He's getting some big players, you know, Glenn Greenwald. That's on a, a national, worldwide scale. On the local, sort of hyper-local standpoint, would a benefactor model still work? And is there somebody here that you need to find that would be willing to fund sort of a, you know, a, a hyper-local kind of a, um, content site? Well, I think there's a... What I was going to say earlier when we were talking about benefactors is that that I think it depends on your definition of benefactor. Right? Mm-hmm. If you if you if you expand it wide enough, then basically any business that exists has benefactors. It's just all of their customers, right? They're all willing to pay for this thing that that is valuable. <laughs> and my friends and family, housemates included, <laughs> yeah. have been supporting the website in other ways. Right, for sure. <laughs> a I lot of other ways. That. You know what I mean? Well, the, so that's I, a good point. I, and I think this might go. This might be also a good topic to get into. I mean, one issue with benefactors is you know. Other forms of benefactors are advertisers, and there's always that question of the the supposed firewall between your editorial content and your advertisers. And if Toyota is going to give you a free car and five thousand dollars to go and write great things about what you can do at your Toyota, is that you know a credible news operation, or really you just trying to come up with a way to earn that five thousand dollars? Or uh, if a developer says we want to do a website all about Kakaako, but you're never going to cover the the sewer smells, you're not going to cover the overcrowding, but you're going to talk about the arts district. But it's good coverage. It's good coverage. But people will have doubts about it because of the benefactor, the person behind it. You know, how would you, uh, maybe James, um, struggle with that if you did find us, maybe the Honolulu Academy of Arts and the, 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 the head of the chairman there said, okay, I will fund your site for a year, but why don't we keep the Academy of Arts on the front page every day? I mean... How yeah, is there an oath that? of ethics? Yeah, so you'd have to you'd have to be very upfront about it. I think you'd have to either make that look a little different, similar to like an advertorial or what they're doing with the native advertising now uh, in, online. Um, those are some new challenges that are, they're facing. So you can pay a little bit more to have the native advertising look a lot like the New York Times font and design, but it's obviously a well, maybe not so obviously an advertisement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So now a lot of the journalistic ethic boards are saying, well, hey, this could be a little weird. This could be deceiving the reader. So maybe we should come up with more guidelines about this native advertising thing. And I think that as long as everyone's up front or in the article, if it's mentioned that, you know, here's a disclaimer or here's disclosure that, you know, this is funded by the chair of the board of the museum, um, 
or maybe the website is says the off center presented by whatever you know the board uh, then as long as it's clear I think the readers can judge for themselves what to trust and what not to trust but if it's kind of kept a secret and kept under some veil then then it becomes fishy you know? mm-hmm. well I think Ben maybe you can uh, maybe as a consumer of of media I mean a lot of people are saying that the idea of an objective news outlet is in, impractical. It's unrealistic. Everybody has an opinion, even the objective journalist. So why not let that flag fly and say, okay, I'm going to be writing about gay marriage, but I have a strong opinion about it, so you're going to get both interviews and context, but my opinion. And you as a reader just know that, and you can adjust either, well, this guy's a jerk because I don't agree with him, or you know, I, you, know you, can, you can adjust your own lens because the bias might be clear. Do you think that's maybe where journalism's headed, that the... Uh, the blind justice with the scale isn't the way to approach it, and you can just be a person. I think so. I mean, uh, I'm my view on this is somewhat controversial. I think, with, like most of my views, but uh, <laughs> but I think that I think that's totally fine. You know, I don't have a problem with somebody paying for an article as long as it's clear that that's what's going on, right? So there's I have this this idea in my head that I keep referring to as methodology, right? All the disclosures required to explain as much as possible about how this article came in, into being, and I feel like people when they approach news. Uh, should be as skeptical as possible, right? And if we can change the expectation to to be very skeptical, then I think we can have a, a news environment that starts to move in directions that can support better uh, better journalism, right? And I think that's I don't know that the answer lies there necessarily, but I think it's it's something we would need to do to start to figure out how this thing is going to work, because because uh, it seems pretty hard. It seems like a hard problem. Now, in, in that kind of environment, uh, and if people are expressing their bias, how do you still, let's say, qualify whether they're still a trusted source? Uh, is there any way that, you know, is it just experience over time, you know, the fact that this person's been around for so long? Or how do you, how do you establish whether that, even there is, if there is a bias that, that's expressed, how do you take it as being a, a qualified, let's say, uh, reporter? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. I think uh, you can start to answer with some of this this methodology idea. So if I'm reporting, if I'm a, a staunchly conservative uh, person, but I'm making a statement that is that contradicts my my own biases because I can explain to you, well, I read it in in this book, and now you're relying on the reputation of this book or of this of this information source, then somebody can look at that and say, well. I can't dispute that. I can look it up myself. Mm-hmm. I can look at this thing, and, and that's that's this fact. So despite the fact that I disagree with this person's, I he has a, a, a known bias, and I disagree with his, his normal statements, uh, I can't dispute this. And one thing good about the Internet is it's not like you're going to be jamming 30 footnotes at the end of an article. Every mention of something can be a citation and a mm-hmm. link to where someone can find mm-hmm. more information. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think it comes down to just the writing itself. I mean, if the guy is a guy I agree with or not, if he's writing in an in- entertaining or really intelligent way that still is a rewarding experience as a reader, I mean, I'd agree with him, but I mean, I'm going to stick with him because, hey, I'm still getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. If he's a bad writer, I mean, he's right. just a blowhard. Well, one one topic I definitely wanted to get to, because it was a hot topic in media and in journalism uh, last year, is comments. You know, popular science turned off their comments, not just because people are idiots in comments, but because they believe that by the mere presence of comments on a scientific article diminishes the value that it can convey. Because if the first comment is this is, you know, horse, horse pucky, (laughs) that 
that it immediately diminishes that in a reader's mind, even if they know it's not Horsebucky, just seeing that comment there. And other popular and big sites are either requiring real names and Facebook logins or turning off comments altogether. So when people were excited about this, they said this is the democratization of media because the reader has a voice. Now they're saying the re reader could actually be an idiot, so forget it. So James, what do you think? Are comments an important part of the new media ecosystem, or is life better perhaps just letting your voice be the one that's on your side? Well, I mean, I think it's it depends on the publication. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, in, in the science realm, I think it's important because as soon as the science paper is published in a journal, it becomes like hacked away and, and totally debated and completely sometimes destroyed. But I think that is very important to the field of scientific research. Um, but when it comes to like uh, like an arts and culture website, which is not nearly scientific at all, it I think it becomes a, a a conversation between the publication and the and the readership, right? So some so people refer to the website to me as a blog sometimes, and and I don't know why, but I I kind of bristle and I like cringe a little bit, and I I like the idea of it being a website, and I don't know why that is. I don't mm -hmm. know why that like the word blog has you know. Connotate, connotates bad things to me. Or well, if, you're a, if you have journalism as a background, amateur. there was the time where blogs were going to destroy you, so that yeah. might be it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. It, it makes me it gives a sour taste in my brain, but um, I think that a blog may be just one person's point of view, whereas a website encompasses a lot of different ones. And so if, you're, if you engage in comments or engage in conversation with your audience or with various viewpoints, then, then that, it, I don't know, it, it adds depth to your website, I think. Now, the stuff can be bad too and they can just be trolling your website or just trying to do whatever they do but I, th I think for the most part we don't really have that problem I don't know yeah I don't know what would happen if we had that kind of stuff mm. but I think it would find its way to go away <laughs> it would just go away <laughs> now you know we only have a couple of seconds left but I, I do want to have you give the opportunity for uh, everybody to continue this conversation and where might they be able to do that well, we're starting tonight a journalism film series at R&D. It's called Deadline. We're going to feature three films, and actually a lot of the topics we discussed tonight are included in a, a collection of essays that were written by many local journalists, including uh, Bert Lum. Wow. Our, our it's, I hope it's the one that James likes. Thrilling. <laughs> yeah, James James cut a lot of essays. It is and, a uh, fierce essay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one, that, that starts tonight at 7 yeah, We actually published that one on theoffsetter.com today. If you cool. want a sample of what these essays are going to be like, you can go there and read one. And it's really interesting stuff. So the series is going to be tonight, Thursday, and Friday. It starts right. at 7.30 over at R uh, 7 o'clock, yeah, right? 7 p.m. And uh, each film will be followed by a panel of the journalists who wrote essays about that film. Cool. And we'll have about an hour of discussion afterwards to to rehash this conversation and more. Good. Uh, and it's going to be a great time. We'll be there on uh, Friday, right? Well, Brand Trevino is the principal over at the uh, Inner Island Terminal, and of course, James P. Cave is the editor over at the Offsetter. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us verbally waving. Right. <laughs> and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about what to expect from the 2014 legislative session. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show at bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And I'm at Hawaii. We always appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Derek, for your comments. Uh, our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovic. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Ocean Blue and a song called Sunset Moonrise. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.